know, years ago, as Sydney and I were first beginning to have kids, we were sitting down and thinking about, you know, what are some of the things that we want to instill in them? What are some of the things that we want to give? And we have this huge list of things that we're trying to train them in. But one of the things that uh, is really important to us that we wanted to hand off was we wanted to teach them the lost art of letter writing. Because, you know, in, in a culture like ours that is so fast-paced and that is so overly connected, it's amazing how quickly we can communicate with each other. That's a good thing. Sometimes, though, in a world like that, communication can feel really trivial. And so, like, I don't know if any of you woke up this morning and, like, looked at your phone and saw a text and went, oh, my goodness, I got a text, you know, and you're just pumped because you probably hear from people like a thousand times a day, and at times you wish they'd quit communicating to you. But there's something powerful in the midst of kind of this digital hyperconnectivity that we have when you get a handwritten letter from a trusted friend, like especially if you've been in a difficult season, have you ever noticed just the way that a letter can cut through the noise of communication in our world? Like, you know, somebody had to like use their hand and write it down and buy a stamp and put it in the mail. And it's like, man, this is so thoughtful. It's just amazing kind of the way that it gets your attention. Even if somebody's gonna write me some hate mail, it's like at least they had to pay 50 cents for it, you know, or whatever a stamp costs. There's something powerful about getting a letter in the midst of kind of this moment that, that we find ourselves in. So it's this art that we've tried to teach and it's something that we try to lean into as a family, like writing words of encouragement. And I remember years ago, I was sitting down with a friend of mine. He and his wife used to be a part of our church before their job transferred them to another state. And we were just having coffee and he said, Dave, what's something about you that maybe most people don't know? And I thought about that. I said, you know, one of the things that I love to do is to hold on to letters that people have written me in various seasons of my life. And I go back, and when I'm in a hard moment, I just read through them. He said, oh, that's kind of cool. And so we just went about our conversation. I didn't think anything about it. And so a few months later, my buddy that I'd been having coffee with called me, and he said, he said, hey, I've got this gift for you. I don't know if it's weird for one dude to give another dude a gift in public. And like, it depends on the gift. And, and I don't know what you're bringing me. And he said, okay, I'll come to your office. So I was a little nervous. And, and he showed up at my office with this wooden box. And uh, my friend's a carpenter. And I'm like, I don't know what this is. Is this an urn? Is this, you know, I'm not sure what this is. I'm scared to open it. He said, I want to tell you about this box. He said, I've been working on this since you and I had coffee that day. And he said, you'll notice it's the size of kind of a standard envelope. And he said, when you told me that thing about the value of letters, he said, I wanted to give you something to hold on to the words that meant something to you. I'm like, whoa, what a cool gift. I'm like, man, that's amazing. So I opened up this box, and in this box were all of these letters. He had gone to some of the folks that are in my community, my friend group, and said, hey, what's a, a word of encouragement? What's something for Dave in the midst of this season? And it's, it's honestly, it's been one of the coolest, most treasured gifts I've ever gotten uh, I have those letters in this box. I have other letters that people have written me. I have letters from like my distant past. And this literally sits by our bed. And sometimes in the middle of a difficult season, I will open it up and I'll pull out a letter because there is something amazing about reading the, the words of a trusted friend, especially in the middle of a difficult season. And I was going back through these, some of these letters recently and I found one of the old, maybe the oldest letter in the box that I put in there after he had built this for me. It was a letter that um, Aaron Etheridge wrote to me. Some of you uh, don't know Aaron. He and his wife, Amy, were on our pastoral team for 10 years. We just sent them out about a month ago to Egypt. I spoke with them yesterday. They gave you the greetings, and they're doing great and culturally adjusting and all that stuff. But I found this letter that he had written to me when he was 17 or 18, and I was like 15 or 16, and I would love to just take our time this morning to read it because it's hilarious. Um, <laughs> 
just like a window into our friendship in that moment in time. But I was reading back through that letter, and it's interesting because it had the components that almost every great letter does. There was, there's all of this encouragement. And yet in the midst of it, and I'd forgotten all about this, there was this moment where, because he loved me, he said, hey, I want to say something to you that might be kind of hard for you to hear, but I think if you will receive it, it will make you better. And so it was this, this letter that he, he wrote, and he goes, hey, here's some encouragement, but there's a little bit of challenge, and if you would lean into it, I think it would help you rise above. And you know, this letter is like you know, almost 30 years old now. And I'm reading it, and I go, man, it is a profound thing when somebody loves you enough to say what is true, whether you're ready to hear it or not. And this is what I love about Revelation chapter two and three. In a lot of ways, it's like we're gonna open up the wooden box that's sitting beside the bedside of the church that's going through a really difficult season. Just to give you a little bit of context for when these letters were written, it was 50 years after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. The church had gone from being a looked over minority to being a prominent and well-celebrated group of people to being a group that was under pressure. And then by the time you get to Revelation, they are in the midst of full-on persecution. They had felt their reality, their place in society had shifted and had changed. And to be a follower of Jesus in the moment they found themselves in, it was becoming increasingly difficult. All of the apostles, Jesus' original 12, the OGs, all of them had been killed except for one, a guy named John who's now an old man. He's in a prisoner's camp off the west coast of Turkey, this island called Patmos. And it's here in the midst of the pressure and the persecution that Jesus is gonna show up to John and he's gonna say, hey, let's write some letters together to the churches. I've got some things I wanna encourage them on and I've got some things I need to say that are kind of challenging, but if they'll receive it, it will help them rise up. And what we're gonna do for the next couple of months is we're just gonna literally open the box and read somebody else's mail and just ask the question, Jesus, what are you trying to say to us in this moment, because the truth is, if, if you listen, there's a lot of opinions about the church. But I would argue really the only opinion that matters at the end of the day is Jesus's. Because at the end of the day, we're not gonna stand before the culture, we're not gonna stand before other churches, we're not even gonna stand before one another and go, hey, how do we do? We're gonna stand before the Lord and he's gonna go, hey, I've got some things that I wanna say. And so if, uh, Revelation chapter two, starting in verse one, I want you to just look at this. I love the way that it starts. You're gonna notice this theme throughout the letters. They're gonna start in a similar way. The first of the seven letters goes like this. To the angel of the church in the city of Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. I love this, this opening in every letter. Jesus is gonna introduce himself. He's gonna use some different pictures to introduce himself, to describe himself. In this letter to the church in Ephesus, he's gonna say, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my hand. I'm the one who walks among the lampstands. I know your deeds. And there's so much we could get lost on in there, but here's what he's saying essentially. He goes, I know your current circumstances are shaky and uncertain, but I hold the future firmly. And although you can't see me, he goes, I'm walking amongst the lampstands. I'm dialed into what's happening in your church. And I love this. He goes, I know your deeds. I've got perspective. Jesus comes out of the gate. He goes, I know the cultural moment's tough. He goes, I hold the future in my hand. I'm amongst the churches. I'm in the midst of all the mess. And I've got some words to say. 
And he comes out of, of the gate kind of swinging. It's beautiful. It's bold. It's, it's clear. But I love this. Look back at verse 1 with me. He says, he says, to the church that's in the city of Ephesus. And I think it's, it's important that we understand the context that Jesus, he's sitting with John in this moment of great cultural pressure. He says, let's start with the church that's in that influential city, the influential city of Ephesus. If you were to look at a map, the ancient city of Ephesus is located in what we now refer to as modern Turkey. Uh, in your Bibles, you'll see this as Asia Minor. That's what it was referred to then. But this is modern-day Turkey. And the city of Ephesus is on the westernmost coast of, of western Turkey. And John is writing this letter just a few miles off the coast on this prison island of Patmos. And so Ephesus was one of those cities. It was a city that anybody and everybody would have been proud to be from. It's sort of what you probably feel in your heart when you tell somebody that you're from Nashville. And what do people say? They're like, oh, I love Nashville. That's where my bachelorette party was. And we're like, thanks. You know, or, oh, man, I love, I love Nashville. I want to go there. Isn't it fun to be from a city that everybody loves? Ephesus was one of those cities during the days that Jesus was speaking to John. It was a New York City or a Tokyo or a Paris of its day. It was an influential city. It was a happening place. It was a place where arguably at the time it had the most profitable port city of any other place in the world. More commerce came in and out of that port than maybe any other place in the world at this time. In regards to education, it was second in the world only to Alexandria. They had more libraries per capita than any other place. They had the world's leading medical facility and school. Uh, they were the center of commerce, of education, of technology. They had the world's, at the time, the world's largest single standing building, which was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, which was not just a place of worship and religion. It was a place of economic strength and prosperity and power. Uh, during a, a day that was quite primitive, the, the people in Ephesus had running water. They had indoor plumbing and toilets that they had learned from the Roman Empire. Just an amazing place to be. It was a great season to be an Ephesian. And Jesus looks at John, who's in the midst of this hardship, and he goes, he goes hey, John, let's, let's say some things. I've got some things to say. And he goes, let's start with this city, this influential city that everybody loves. And he zooms in, verse one, he goes, in the midst of that city, that influential city, he goes, there's a church, and it's not just any church, it's an influential church. It's the church of Ephesus that had an incredible history up until this point. I just, I just want you to understand, in the middle of that great global city, there was a church that was doing some amazing things. They were about 40 years into this journey by the time that Jesus speaks these words to them in Revelation 2. They had this incredible history. Just to give you some of the cliff notes, you can go back and read in Acts 19 if you want to know the history of this influential church in the middle of this great global city. Acts 19 tells the story that they'd been a church that for their entire existence, they had been served by amazing leaders. The church was started by the Apostle Paul, who handed it over to Timothy. Remember in the New Testament, Paul writes the letter to Timothy as he's pastoring the church in Ephesus. Timothy hands it over to the Apostle John, who is Jesus is speaking with, he's writing this letter. John, who was the best friend of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. And the church was served itinerantly by the teaching ministry of the powerhouse couple Aquila and Priscilla. So I just want you to imagine just the steadfast leadership, the Apostle Paul, Timothy, John, Aquila and Priscilla. 
This influential church, great leaders in the midst of this great city, they didn't just have great leaders. You go back to Acts 19, they had had this unbelievable evangelistic impact. If you read the story of their early days, it says that in the midst of training their leaders and sending them out over the course of two years, there was not a Jew or Greek in all of Turkey or in all of Asia Minor who had not at least had the opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus because of the work of this church. Our church is passionate about disciple making and church planting, but can you imagine like if we stood up here two years from now and go, okay guys, we've kind of done our work. We've reached all of the United States. Incredible impact. This influential church, great leaders. All of this work evangelistically. Kind of a third thing that you see from their history is they had been a powerhouse of the Holy Spirit's manifestation. Great power. Acts chapter 19, it says that people are getting saved, the sick are being healed, the demons are being cast out. There's this one moment in Acts 19 in the city of Ephesus where Paul is so busy preaching, he doesn't have time to go to the healing meeting. And so it says the disciples come and take his handkerchief, take it to the sick, and people are getting healed. Can you imagine that? Holy Spirit revival just breaking out in their midst. Great leaders, evangelistic fruitfulness. Holy Spirit manifestation. Number four, cultural influence. You go back to Acts 19. It says that in the midst of all of these things that was happening, this little church in the middle of this influential city, it says that the fear of the Lord Jesus rested on the city. In other words, people who were not even yet Christians began to honor and esteem the name of Jesus. Crazy. It says that the economic city of the day, uh, uh, economic engine of the day was beginning to turn upside down because of the power of Jesus. People quit buying all of the pagan things that they used to buy because Jesus was getting such a hold of their heart. And I want you to just imagine this, that next Saturday night, Broadway is empty. Nobody's in all of the decadence and the revelry and they go, what's happened? Is there a boycott? Is the power out? Is COVID back? What's going on? It's like, no, the people in this city have just gotten so serious about Jesus, they're not interested in those things anymore. That Tinder goes out of business because people just quit using it because they're sick of casual hookups because Christ has gotten a hold of their hearts. So what was happening in the early days of this church in Ephesus You read back in Acts 19, it says that literally people were bringing their old way of life into the streets and burning it in the streets, these books. Riots were breaking out. Things were happening because the church was not marginalized to the corners, but it was having great influence. This was the history of the church in Ephesus. And Jesus looks at him and he goes, hey, you're in a great city and you have a great history. And he goes, but I want to give you some encouragement. All of the good stuff's not just in the past. He goes, I want you to see what's happening. Look back at verse uh, one and two with me. He says, I walk among the seven golden lampstands, verse two. And he goes, I know your deeds, your hard work. He goes, it's not just all in the past. He goes, you're still hardworking. You're not apathetic. You're planting churches. You're making disciples. You're serving the poor. You're getting creative. You're running recovery groups. You're passionate about the good news going out, Jesus goes, I love this about your church. I love that you're hardworking. He keeps going, I love your perseverance. Jesus looks at this church and he goes, you're living in a moment where it's tough to be a follower of Jesus. Culturally speaking, this was the moment where the emperors were taking Christians, running poles through their bodies while they were still alive, dipping them in tar, setting them on fire, and placing them in their gardens to light their parties as all of their rich friends sat around and ate hors d'oeuvres. 
It was not an easy moment to be a follower of Jesus. And he goes, I love your hard work. I love the way you're persevering. I love this next one. This isn't very culturally palatable. You'll notice this over the next eight weeks is that Jesus is gonna step on all of our toes, which is a beautiful thing. Listen to this. He goes, and I love that you cannot tolerate wicked people. Jesus goes, I love your holiness. You live in a world where all around you, at work and with your friends and in your neighborhoods, it is marked by sexual decadence and immorality and paganism. And he goes, and although you're doing life out there, I love that you do not tolerate it in here. He goes, I love that you have not made peace with the things that I'm at war against. I love that you've not made peace with the things that are at war against the human soul and its flourishing. And Jesus goes, I love this about you. You're an influential church, an influential city, great history. You've worked hard and you've persevered and you're holy. He gives them one more thing. I love this, this word of encouragement. And he says, and you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You found them to be false. You've persevered. You've endured the hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. Jesus says, I love that you are sound in your doctrine. You don't just take every podcast as though it's the inspired word of God. You don't take every book and every latest trend as though it's the word of God. You test it. You wrestle it out. Your theology is really good. And I just want you to imagine for just a moment. Here you are in the church of Ephesus, this influential city, in a moment where it's tough to be a follower of Jesus, and somebody shows up on a Sunday and they go, hey, we've got a letter for all of us to listen to. Who's the letter from? Is it, well, John wrote it, but who's the letter from? It's from Jesus. And everybody just kind of sits up and Jesus goes, hey, here's what I love about you. I love your history. I love how hard you work. I love your persevering spirit. I love your commitment to holiness. I love your sound doctrine. And I can just imagine people in that church, they're like high five. They're like, yeah. And then the guy reading the letter just stops for a minute and he goes, mm. but there's more. Look at verse four. And this is where the challenging words of Jesus are gonna come. He goes, but yet I have this thing against you. Guys, did you know it's possible for Jesus to stand against us? I think sometimes in our watered down, so soft, like fragile culture that we find ourselves in, it is hard for us to even believe that a loving God would stand against his people at times. And Jesus goes, man, you have a great history and all of this stuff has happened. He goes, but there's something I have against you. Have you ever had one of those moments where a, a good friend sits down with you and they go, hey, I've... I, I've got to share something hard with you. You're not gonna like me hearing it. Like, how's that feel? <laughs> you know, here's the way it typically works in the South, and it's kind of what Jesus is doing here too. It's, it's sort of like that, you know, that sandwich, something nice, something hard, into something nice, you know, <laughs> and see if you can swallow it. I remember years ago, a good friend of mine, he sat down with me, and, and this is me being really vulnerable. Like, he'd been at church, and the Sunday before, I told a story, and in that story, um, I thought I had told it well, and I thought I had told it true, and a few days later, we're sitting down and having a cup of coffee, and he says, man, I loved your message. There's the encouragement. He said, but hey, when you're telling that story, he goes, I was there for that, and he said, I don't know if you did it on a purpose. I'm not sure if it was malicious. He goes, I know you enough to think that's not true. He goes, but the way you told it made me think that, it, that you weren't being completely true. He said, because I didn't remember it that way. 
And do you know how I felt in that moment when he was confronting me? And then he went on to say, he goes, and here's the truth. He goes, in that moment, I thought, I don't know if I wanna listen to the rest of what you have to say. And he's like, Dave, we need you to be deeply true. And I thought, I hate this guy. <laughs> have, any of you ever, have any of you ever had a friend that had that prophetic gift of encouragement that just came and said, hey, like, let's talk about this thing. I love you enough, I just gotta say it. And man, at first it crawled all over me, but I realized whatever my intentions were, whether I did it on purpose or not, which I didn't think that I did, he was speaking into a blind spot. He was speaking something true. And guys, here's the reality is hard words from a good friend will produce a soft heart. But soft words from good friends will produce hard hearts. <laughs> and Jesus loves us enough to sometimes say the hard thing. And back in verse four, he goes, he goes, despite your history, despite everything that's happening, here's the hard word. He goes, you have forsaken, you've let go of, you've thrown away your first love for me. Somewhere in the midst of you serving me, you have fallen out of love with me. And Jesus goes, this is a really big deal. In fact, it's the biggest deal. If you think about the greatest commandment, Jesus was the one time asked in his earthly ministry, what matters most to you? And he goes, that my people would love me with all of their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. They'd be crazy about me. It's not a suggestion. It's not an invitation. It's a commandment. Did you know that? That, that the expectation of Christ towards his people is that we love him wholeheartedly, wholebodily, more than we love anything else. And here's the reality, is we live in a world that is normalizing apathy. We live in a world that just goes, ah, apathy's normal. And Jesus goes, no, I'm not making peace with that. I have this against you. <clears throat> he goes, you've fallen out of love with me. Somewhere in the midst of your history of serving me and working for me, you've, you've lost your first love. And this is the reality of, of love, isn't it? We all know this, is that love is like a fire and unless it is tended to and cared for, eventually it grows cold and it dies. This is the truth in human relationships. I want you to just think about this for a moment, is that human relationships begin in this place of great intimacy. And if you stay in that place of intimacy, it leads to productivity. Here's what I mean. Man and wife come together, they love each other in a moment of intimacy, which I will not describe on a Sunday morning. They produce new life. Intimacy leads to productivity. But don't you know in the context of relationship that when you get busy caring to that which has been produced from intimacy, if your productivity does not lead you back to intimacy, productivity will lead to apathy, and apathy will lead to death. It's the reason people are married for 30 years, and they are a shell of themselves. They go, man, how are we the same people that when we were 17, we're sneaking out, making out in the back of a truck? And, and now it's just like we are roommates passing in the night, caring for these kids that seem to hate us. And, you know, it's like all this, I'm just speaking hyperbolically, like, Because the reality is love starts in intimacy. It produces things that need to be tended to and cared for. And over time, if that productivity does not lead back to intimacy, it leads to apathy and death. And Jesus looks at this church in this great city with all of this work and he goes, man, you guys have been serving, you've been holding on, you've been preaching, you've been doing all this. He goes, he goes but here's the thing that matters to me more than anything else. He goes, I want your whole heart. I want your whole heart, I want every bit of who you are 
to be infatuated with me. And he goes, that's my rebuke. Is that somewhere along the way you've fallen out of love with me. But I love this in, in the way that Jesus does. He never leaves us. He never takes us to the edge of the cliff and goes, here's the tough stuff and leaves us there. He goes, he goes hey, I wanna invite you back into more. He goes, I want to, to not just have what we had before. He goes, I want more than that. He goes, I wanna invite you all the way into more. And he's just gonna get really practical here. Look at the next verse with me. Verse five, he says, I want you to consider how far or remember how far you've fallen. I want you to repent and to do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. I just want you to hear this. Jesus, he loves this church. He loves these people. He's gonna just speak so clearly. He goes, your love for me has grown cold. Here's how you begin to get back. Here's how we begin to stoke the fires of love. He just gives them two really simple things in verse five. Number one is he says, I want you to remember what it was like when you were really in love with me. He says, I want you to consider. I want you to think about. I want you to daydream. I want you to go back to those moments of first love. For moments of first love are crazy. I remember when Sydney and I were, were first falling in love and just some of the stuff that you do when you're first in love, like it's crazy. Like I remember I was a freshman in college and she was a junior and, a, and a, <laughs> I was a rebound. We all knew it. I don't care. Just had to hold on. And in those early days, it's like, man, something was stirring and and she loved flowers, I didn't have any money, so I remember I'd go around campus and I would pull up flowers out of the landscaping by the root. <laughs> and I would tie a note around it and take it to her dorm and leave it, on the, leave it on the counter and they'd have to call her down from the front, like, you have flowers, I think, you know? And, <laughs> and then it became, hey, can I dig up more than flowers? Can I get whole bushes and shrubs? And, and, and it was just this season where it's like, oh man, I'm just in love, I'm gonna do something crazy. I just want you to know I'm thinking about you. Or those long distance summers. I remember one summer, my, my friend was living in Charleston and his girlfriend was in Nashville as well. And we're like, hey, let's write letters to our girlfriends. Let's drive all the way through the night. Let's give them the letter. Let's drive back. Let's... I'm like, why? I don't know. Because <laughs> young love, it just, it, it, the first days of love just stir. And Jesus goes, hey, do you remember what it was like when you first fell in love with me? You'd worship, you didn't care what anybody was thinking. You've gotten so civilized. You'd pray all night, you'd share your faith, you'd read the scriptures, you'd, you'd just go after it. <laughs> you'd serve the poor, you'd give your money, you, you're like, oh, I'm gonna live this great adventure. And he goes, somewhere along the way, your intimacy gave way to productivity, your productivity gave way to apathy, and you're on the verge of death. And Jesus goes, I love you enough to say, I won't make peace with your apathy. Remember, remember, reflect. Go back to that moment. Hey, what was it like? I go, isn't it problematic that so often when you think about zealous, passionate Christians, you tend to think about young people? Because the, real, the reality is most of us have not learned how to stoke the fires of our heart all the way. And I go, man, what do I hope Ethos Church looks like? I hope, you know, man, 40, 50 years from now, there's a bunch of 80 and 90 year olds in here that the 15 and 20 and 30 year olds are going, how do we keep up with their zeal for the Lord? Yeah. And guys, I just declare that destiny over us, that we will not be a church marked by fading affection for Jesus. Yeah. And we won't make peace with that. And he goes, hey, I want you to remember, I want you to remember to just literally sit back 
and reflect on what it was like in those early days. And then he gives them the second thing. Look back at verse five. He goes, and then I want you to repent. I want you to return. I want you to go back. And I want you to notice repentance is not just this mental ascension to some good ideas. Repentance is the act of turning to someone, turning to, to do something. He goes, I want you to do what you used to do at first. He goes, I want you to seek me that way, to, to pray, to, to worship, to, to give yourself wholeheartedly to community. I want you to, to do that because here's the reality as you as you lean into those things, he goes, I am going to stir your affection for me again. One of my favorite stories of revival is from the Moravians. I love this moment from the Moravian history. If you don't know anything about them, go back and study them in the, in the mid 1700s. God just used them in amazing ways through prayer, through fasting, through worship. They started a prayer meeting 24 hours a day, seven days a week that lasted for 100 years. That's a true story. Can you imagine that? You know, we're pumped like a month of prayer and fasting and the Moravians are like, hold my beer. Like I've got something for you. Hold my grape juice, you know. Um, They're like, 100 years. They sent out more missionaries all over the world than arguably any other group in human history. And there's a group of pastors and missionaries that showed up to visit what was happening amongst the Moravians and they sat down with Count Zinzendorf, the guy that was leading them at the time, and they were just noticing their practice and their worship and the things that they're going after. And these visiting pastors and missionaries said, how come you're laboring so intensely after all that God has done? Why are you so intense in your prayer? Why are you so intense in your worship? And this was his response. He goes, this is us warding off lukewarmness. How's that? (laughs) He goes, this is us warding off lukewarmness because the reality of life is the gravitational pull of the world is to say, be passionate when you're young, fade in glory until you die and hope it's enough when you see Jesus face to face. And Jesus goes, I've got more for you than that. Remember, remember, and then get back after it. He goes, return to the things that you did. Look back at verse five, this is tough. He goes, because if you do not repent, guys, these are Jesus' words. I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. All throughout the book of Revelation, the lampstand is the symbol for the church. And I just want you to hear what I believe Jesus is saying to them and what he's also saying to us in America. Jesus says, I would rather have no church in that great city than have a half-hearted church in that great city. Jesus goes, if I have to choose between having a church in the city, this is kind of, I kind of like you, kind of love you, kind of give you a little bit of my energy or having no church at all. He goes, I would rather have no church at all than have what's there right now. And I just wonder if part of what we're experiencing right now in the American church that's declining so quickly and everybody's asking the question, what's happening? I just wonder if we are literally in our generation witnessing Jesus beginning to remove a lampstand that's grown cold, a half-hearted church that's only casually interested in them. And Jesus goes, it does not have to be this way. You have a great history. But if you come back to me, you have an unbelievable future. Verse seven Whoever has the ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
Jesus goes, man, I hold the future. I'm amongst the church. I know what's happening. I know your history. I know your present. And I know the future that I want to give to you. But I'm just telling you, the future that I want to give to you runs right through the center of your surrendered heart. He goes, I want to have your heart again. You know, it's interesting. If you were to visit the city of Ephesus today, it used to be one of the biggest most affluent port cities in the world, but during the days that John was writing this letter to them, they had this issue where silt was beginning to silt up the river and the port, and it was difficult for ships to get in to the river, and so they're bringing in engineers from all over the world during the time that this letter is being written to try to get the silt out of the harbor because they knew if they did not protect the life source of the city, the city would dry up. And sure enough, if you were to go to Ephesus today, it is a city that no longer sits on the water. It's really unusual. If you go there today, it is an ancient ruin that is 10 miles from the closest body of water because over time, the silt did that to the river, did that to the harbor. The money quit coming in. The city died. The church dissipated. And now it's just an ancient ruin that people visit on a tour to buy T-shirts and trinkets. And Jesus was looking at that city and he was looking at that church and I believe the simple invitation was, hey, be so diligent to guard the harbor of your heart so that over time, the distractions of the world, the disappointments in your faith, the doubts that you wrestle with, the things that come up against you, don't begin to silt up your heart and cut you off from the life stream of Jesus. There's some of you that come in the beginning of this year, and if you're just really honest, you go, who I am now spiritually is a shell of who I was 15 years ago, or two years ago, or 10 months ago. And some of you are going, man, in the cares of the world and the pursuit of a job or that broken relationship that you keep going back to, whatever it is, like it is silting up the river of your heart. And if you're honest, the living water of Jesus, it's not flowing the way that it used to. And I believe this is part of what the Lord is inviting us into in this season is to just come to him and say, hey, Lord, I need you to retrench my heart. I need you to dig it out again. I need you to refocus me again so that, that, that the ships of your grace and kindness can come all the way into the heart so that this place can live again. And I believe that's what the Lord wants to do. There's some of you here that have never experienced that first love. You've never experienced the reality of Christ really coming in. And I just want you to hear this. Following Jesus will involve you doing some things, but first and foremost, it's not about what you do, it's about whom you love. And this is not a big invitation into a whole bunch of new habits. But the journey of faith is an invitation into this wild love story between you and the one who made you. And so Jesus looks at him and he goes, man, I love you guys. And there's more, and I want your heart again. I just wanna ask you just real simply, if it's just you and the Lord this morning, he were to look at you, does he have your whole heart? Like truly. Does he have your whole life? Is your affection for him growing? Because if not, I think the starting point into this journey together this morning is to literally just cry out, hey, Lord, I want to want you again. I'll end with this. One of my favorite thinkers and theologians of the last hundred years is a guy named A.W. Tozer, and just a giant in the faith. 
and just mighty man of God. And I found this prayer this week. It's towards the end of his life and his later years. Apparently, he was in a season of just kind of going through a dry spot with the Lord. I just invite you to close your eyes and listen to these words. You can even just pray this prayer with him almost. But listen to these words. He says, Lord, I am ashamed of how little I seem to desire you in this season of life. Any of you relate to that? Because I'm ashamed of how little I seem to desire you in this season of life, my God. Listen to this. I want to want you again. I long to be filled with longing for you again. I want you to make me thirsty for you again. For your glory, for your works, but I love this. Make me thirsty so I can know you. Amen. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. And we're gonna take communion here in a moment, but here's what I wanna invite you to do if you have the courage. If you're here this morning and you go, man, my heart has gotten silted up over the years and I don't know that the life force of God is flowing that I want it to flow. Um, I just wanna, I wanna invite you to stand up. I wanna pray a blessing, a breakthrough over you. This isn't like one of those high pressure moments where the person next to you stands and you go, well, I guess I should stand too. Just, I just wanna invite you, like if you know, man, I need breakthrough, I need God to clear something, just stand up real quick and I wanna, I wanna pray over you. Just give you a moment. Just invite you to close your eyes. Somebody's near you that's standing, you put your hand on their shoulder, whatever, like just word of encouragement. Father, we love you, but we want, we want you to help us to love you the way that you've made us to love you. God, at the beginning of the new year, we know you're beckoning us to more. But not just more activity, God, to a place of deeper intimacy. God, for those that had the courage to stand this morning, and even for those that didn't, Lord, would you just, deep within them, would you just open up a wellspring of thirst, of desire? Would you come out? Would you clear any distractions? Would you clear any of the, the residual pain of disappointment that's hung on, that's made it difficult, Lord, for you to come in and to get our attention. Lord, would you just come in at the beginning of this year, and God, would you begin to excavate? And God, would you just bring the life force of the Spirit into our life and into our church and into our city? In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. Let's all stand together. There's communion on the tables in the front and around the room. There's some men and women that will be at the respond banner. We'd love to pray with you this morning. If you